809 in your pew Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, page 809 in your pew Bibles. In our day, we associate the idea of meekness with weakness, but biblically, meekness is defined as power under control. It's having the ability to overlook evil and ignorance that is done against us personally for the glory of God's kingdom, especially when you have the authority or the power to do something about it. Solomon said, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 11. It is much more honorable in God's sight to bury a transgression against you than to seek revenge and even to let it go rather than writing it down so that you will remember the offense. One thing I want you to think about is which is worse, sin or shame? Will you sin against God to save your pride? But I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. Though a Christian's response must not be reviling, they may be vindicating. Meaning when someone is lying and scandalizing our name, we don't have to scandalize their name in order to get even. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. All we do is speak the truth boldly and let God handle the rest. Amen? There must be Christian prudence or caution as well as Christian meekness. So our three points for today's sermon are point number one, the meek are self-controlled. The meek are self-controlled. Point number two, the meek are servants. The meek are servants. And point number three, the meek are secure. The meek are secure. So follow along as I read Matthew chapter five, verses one to five. This is the holy and pure word of God. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Once more, I ask you to please pray with me and for me. Father, we thank you for your grace, your mercy, your kindness, your love. We thank you that you are here with us this morning, Lord. And I pray by your spirit, you would open our hearts and our ears to understand, to receive what is being said, what is being taught. And to help me, Lord God, to speak clearly and accurately. I thank you that you have given us your word. We don't have to guess what you're thinking, but you have given us what we need through the written word, Lord God, and by the power of your spirit to guide us, to open our hearts and minds, to understand, to imbibe what you have written or have had written for our admonition, our learning. Please help us to live these things out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Point number one, the meek 
are self-controlled. The people that Jesus was speaking to on this day did not quite understand his approach. Most of them had banked everything on on whether or not they kept the law and their own self-righteousness, whether rich or poor, healthy or unhealthy. The law was everything to them. But Jesus undermined their thinking when he opened his mouth and began to teach them the true ways of the blessing. As we saw the last two times we were in Matthew's gospel, he called for a broken and poor spirit and a heart that mourns over sin. Now he's calling for meekness. In other words, the self-righteous and the conceited need not apply. Jesus gave us great examples throughout his life of what it was to be meek. Even the very week on which he was to be crucified. When he came into the city, not riding on a white stallion, but on a donkey. Now that's really low class transportation. He showed that meekness is a gentleness and a mildness and a subdued character. It wasn't weakness. But on the contrary, it was power under control. And according to Philippians chapter 2, it's produced through the act of self-emptying yourself, or emptying yourself, I should say. Similar to the taming of a lion. How many of you have been to a a circus or a carnival where you have seen a lion tamer uh, make a lion do things that we would never think a lion is able to do, right? He has been trained or tamed by his handler. But at any moment, at any moment, he could overcome that trainer and overpower him and destroy him. And not only him, but he could also destroy many of the spectators who came to be entertained. But he doesn't. Why not? Is it because he lacks power all of a sudden? No. It's because he's learned to keep his power under control. In the same way, biblical meekness does not mean timidity or one who's fearful or to be without power, but it is power that is regulated by you, by the one who has been given the spirit of God, not just to uh, brag that I'm a Christian or to look more self-righteous than your neighbors, but to live in a way that honors God, in a way that says there's something different about me Not because I'm trying on purpose to show that I'm different, but it's just my nature has been changed. And some of you may be thinking, but that's not me. I was always taught to express myself. And some of you may even say under your breath that I'm incredibly gentle, meek, and mild until somebody tests me. But Solomon says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 28. In other words, a person without the self-control given by God is like someone who leaves themselves open to being overtaken. And that's exactly what happens without biblical meekness. You're vulnerable to being overtaken by anger, vulgarity, And even thoughts that come upon you and overwhelm you. Thoughts that you had gotten rid of. Thinking of ways to pay someone back. Thinking of words that should not be here, that you haven't thought of in a long 
time, biblical meekness, and I'll get into this in a few minutes, is more of saying, Lord God, you are sovereign, high and holy, and I am weak and nothing apart from you, and I deserve nothing good. Unfortunately, many of us believe we think the, we deserve the best, that we should have everything we want, all of our desires. There should be no pain, no suffering. What happened to learning from suffering? Some of us at this very moment know people who are sick, or we were sick, or are sick. Some of us are watching from television and wondering, why me? But have you ever noticed that when your body is touched and you can't move, all of a sudden there's this, 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 this connectivity, either to God extremely, more than normal at least, or to the flesh of complaining and murmuring more than normal. Well, God may be saying, I need you to slow down. I need you to be still. I need you to recognize that good health isn't promised. I need you to look to me. I need you to love me and not the life I've given you, not the stuff in your possession. I need you to take time and pray more, to read more, to rely on the people I've given you more and to appreciate them more. It's not about why me in that sense. It should be about why did you save me? Why do you love me? And learning that it's all about God and if God shows mercy towards you and you are once again on your feet and able to live and go about quote unquote your business you say I have to change it's time for me to serve God so in Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 32 Solomon also said he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city to rule the spirit is meekness. To be out of control is senseless and it's ungodly. Those are the people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not inherit the earth. And when Jesus says that, that the meek will inherit the earth, he's referring to the new glorified earth that will come to be after the consummation of all things. People who live out of control lives do not possess the character of someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit and will dwell in the presence of God throughout eternity. How do we know this? When we think about the fruit of the Spirit, the last one listed is self-control. But without that one, you're not able to do the other eight when you need to. It's easy to be loving, have joy, and feel peaceful when the situation and circumstances are wonderful. But even the unbelievers do that. We have the spirit of God so that when the situation isn't loving, you're not feeling any joy, and you definitely aren't in a peaceful mood, the spirit of God is able to say, wait, 
You are loved by God. Rejoice in your salvation and bask in his love, blessed child. You belong to me. In Jesus' day, times were hard. They were hard. And for many, the love of God wasn't at the forefront of their thoughts. Most of the people fell under one of four different types of leadership. There was a political party known as the Zealots. They were activists who were more concerned about politics than religion. You may know some people like that. I bet you do. They had more of a desire for a military kingdom, and they were looking for a general to lead a violent revolution. They weren't willing to wait for a messiah. They wanted change now. So along with the Sakari, who were the assassins among them, they would strike out with random attacks of violence, even assassinating some important person or government official. But all this did was bring about Roman retaliation. The rest of the population either followed the Pharisees, the Sadducees, or the Essenes. And although they weren't looking for a military kingdom, they too were anxious to overthrow Rome. They were hoping for some type of restoration of the Old Testament theocracy, where the Messiah would come and remove Rome by some incredible supernatural act. But Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Both the Pharisees and the Zealots believed the prophecies from the scriptures promising a Messiah, specifically Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. There we read, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Both groups, the Pharisees and the Zealots, had their own interpretations of these verses, but they did not know how or when it would come to pass. Even the twelve disciples expected it. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, when Jesus was about to ascend back to heaven, they asked, Lord, is it now? Are you going to do something? Are you going to say something? Are you going to make it happen now? Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They wanted to know when. When were they going to see the miraculous or the uprise take place? But God had different plans. When Jesus started talking the way he did in the Sermon on the Mount about the meek, you can imagine the people murmuring amongst themselves. What kind of Messiah is this? Who's going to follow him? We don't want a, a, a soft, weak, and mild Messiah. He'll never conquer Rome. We need to meet violence with violence. So we can better understand uh, that when the crowd saw Jesus standing next to Barabbas, they saw Jesus as a pathetic person. That Pilate was able to batter, bruise, scourge, and crown with a crown of thorn, thorns. What would he do against Rome? They didn't see any beauty in him that they should desire him. So they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. 
and chose Barabbas because at least Barabbas will fight. Jesus disappointed the political activists because he did not call for a revolution. And he also disappointed the religious sect because he didn't destroy Rome with some massive miracle. They also hated him because they believed he was cursed. Which brings us to point number two. The meek are servants. In the Torah, Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 23 says, a hanged man is cursed by God. So in their minds, they were thinking, this can't be the Messiah. But they didn't understand and still don't understand the substitutionary atonement of Christ in which Jesus Christ was sinless, yet died on the cross as a substitute for believing sinners. They didn't understand and are still perplexed to this day concerning Isaiah chapter 53, which in a nutshell teaches that the Messiah would die in our place when he was stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. That he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. They yelled, crucify him. But they deserve to be the ones who were placed on the cross to die for their sins and their sinful disposition, their makeup, just because they were born through the womb, born in sin, born disgraced, born with a penchant to love evil and to do wrong. They didn't understand that Jesus Christ was the one that they were looking for. The one that the the Old Testament pointed to. So many deaths of animals, so many sacrifices, so much blood pointing to this one, fulfilling the law, fulfilling the truth that without the shedding or remission of sins, there is no forgiveness. Or without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. We cannot approach God without this substitutionary atonement. Jesus took the punishment upon himself for those who would believe in his name. God made him who had no sin to be sin for all believers so that in him they might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And by his wounds they are healed. Isaiah 53 And 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Jesus was a servant. He did not overcome. He did not come to overthrow kingdoms. He told them clearly, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. But they missed the whole point. He came in humility and in self-denial. He was teaching that it's not the self-sufficient, the proud, the strong, the arrogant, the confident, confident, or even the religious who are going to enter his kingdom. But on this day, Jesus said the ones who belong to my kingdom are spiritually bankrupt, mournful, and meek. But what is it to be meek? What does that mean? Meekness is similar to being broken in spirit. As a matter of fact, in some places in your Bible, these words could be used interchangeably. 
along with humble. However, there is a beautiful distinction. Being broken in spirit focuses on sin and my sinfulness. But meekness focuses on God's holiness. To put it like this, we are poor in spirit because we are sinners. But we are meek because we recognize God is holy. And he, we recognize he is so holy and so high in his righteousness. And we look at ourselves and we say, why? Why would God have anything to do with me? I know myself. And if we're honest, we would say, if we were God and we knew our thoughts, we wouldn't have anything to do with ourselves. We would pass on by. Not only knowing what we did in the past, but knowing what we'll do in the future. Knowing what we're doing right now. Knowing our thoughts. And the incredible thing is God has said, I have separated your sins. As far as the east is from the west, that is unimaginable by us. And you know how I know it's unimaginable? Because when somebody does something to us, even though the Bible says in at least four places that we must forgive because we have forgiven, we still hold grudges. And we forget Matthew 18 and the hard-hearted laborer who would not forgive his fellow laborer even though he was forgiven of a debt that he could never repay. And the master held it against him and said, get a hold of him and lock him up. Lock him up. And we read that and we keep going. Oh, that has nothing to do with me. That's for somebody else. But it does have everything to do with you. And I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying I do it perfectly. I'm not saying that if somebody does something to me, I just go skip to my loo and it's all good. No, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is I know better. I know better. And what I'm saying is you know better. You know better and you can do better for God's glory. You're not trying to earn your salvation. No, but you're following what your father in heaven said, what his son said, what the Holy Spirit said through the holy apostles, only made holy by the righteousness imputed to them by God. But we can do better. Jesus gave his life. That should resonate with us continually, not just a thought that goes through our minds and in our ears for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. And after it's over, after the benediction is said, right away, it's back to me, my life. No, that cannot be. That cannot be. It, it cannot go on. We are poor in spirit. We should be poor in spirit. That's what God says. And that brings about meekness from who God is and who we are. People who are proud, arrogant, and unrepentant about their sin are shut out of the kingdom of God. No question. It's not even to be debated. But those who are poor in spirit and mourn over sin are meek and have an audience in the presence of God continually. Not just once in a while. Read Psalm 139 again. He hedges us in, front and back. He is continually with us. Where can we go from his spirit? If we descend into hell, he's there, right? If we go out into the farthest parts of the sea, by his 
by our hands. He takes us and he leads us. He's there. His thoughts towards us are more numerous than the sand on the seashore. We can't imagine that God is continually present with us. It's not hit or miss now and then, but continually. I need that to be buried into your heart, into my heart. I need to hear it because we forget. As John Piper said, we're leaky. We're leaky. We hear something and immediately just starts going. It's gone. It's gone. And by Monday night, we've forgotten everything that was said. And we begin living according to the flesh. We begin dealing with people according to the flesh. Forgetting that there's something eternal. The flesh comes and goes. People are brought into your life for a period. Nobody who's in your life was meant to be in your life for your whole life. So while they're there, you represent God. You love. You forgive. You rebuke. Through the word, not through tradition. Not because of how you were raised, but through the word. You bring the word to life. And you speak into the hearts of people that God has said, I'm going to place you here because I'm sovereign and you're not. I'm going to give you this person to love. And you love on them as I love on you. We rely on God constantly. We don't walk around with our chest puffed out like we can handle every problem. We're like Jehoshaphat, right? Some of you will remember this in 2 Chronicles chapter 18. When he saw those 32 chariot commanders coming at him about to destroy him because they thought he was King Ahab, the scripture says he cried out and God helped him. The Lord helped him, helped him. God drew the enemy away from him. The meek recognized all our help comes from the Lord. Not a little, not once in a while, but all day, every day, we lean on his everlasting arm. Now going back to those in Jesus' day, the zealots were saying, we want a military Messiah. The Pharisees were saying, we want a miraculous Messiah. Messiah. The Sadducees were saying, we want a materialistic Messiah. And the Essenes were over in the corner by themselves saying, we want a monastic Messiah. But Jesus defines what type of Messiah he is. Not only did they get it all wrong, but to this day, we still continue to get it wrong, which brings us to point number three. The meek are secure. The meek are secure. So how do we get it wrong? Well, first off, Jesus is the Messiah, and the Messiah is God and King and Master and Lord and Eternal, which means his subjects, you and I, cannot be arrogant or, not, or should not be self-sufficient, because we're not, should not be self-righteous, unrepentant, stiff-necked, or proud. So many of the Apostle Paul's letters stress this to God's people. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, he wrote, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
Then he told Titus in Titus chapter 3 verse 2 to teach his people to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. All people. Even those who don't agree with you politically. All people. This environment has shown the hearts of so many people. So much ugliness. Anti-biblical ugliness. And so many of us need to repent, to get down, get down on our knees before God and refuse to be like the zealous, zealots who wanted political change over heart change, who wanted a political leader who's going to make everything all right instead of the Lord Jesus Christ who makes everything all right. Even to the Colossian believers, in chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, the apostle Paul wrote, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, 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 meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, doing what? Forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiving, forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. God's standard has always been the same. You see meekness as the standard throughout the Bible for God's people, even way back in the Old Testament. And people think of the Old Testament as this hard way that God is so stringent. That is not the God of love of the New Testament. Wrong. In the early days of the history of Israel, there were two brothers, two sons of Jacob. One was Reuben, the firstborn son. He's described like this in Genesis chapter 49. Verses 3 and 4. His father, Jacob, told him, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the firstfruits of my vigor, excelling in rank and excelling in power. Reuben had all the potential to be a leader. Right? He was strong. People looked up to him. But because he lacked discipline, he failed to live up to his potential. And the leadership of his family passed to another. And that other was Joseph, the second youngest son. The difference with him was that he learned meekness. Through a number of incidents where he was challenged by peer pressure, sexual temptation, the possibility of personal gain, and the opportunity to take revenge on those who had hurt him, he refused to give in to the flesh, to the ways of man. Rather than give in to the seduction of Potiphar's wife, he chose to govern his natural desires and resist that temptation, even though he had the power to do so. When he was imprisoned unjustly, he chose not to give in to bitterness, but to wait for God to vindicate him. And having exercised authority over his own desires after having learned to rule himself, he was in turn given authority to rule the whole land of Egypt under Pharaoh. That's a picture of Christ-like meekness. How many times 
do we see the opposite of that in people, people we love, family, friends. We see someone who is full of promise, but because they lack self-discipline or because they're stubborn or self-willed, we mourn. Because we see how God could use their gifts, their knowledge, their abilities, if only they were meek. In the age to come, Isaiah prophesied that the meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. And the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel, Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 19. As the Bible once again connects the meek to the poor in spirit, that's what it's talking about. When when speaking of Christ in judgment and what comes to the meek compared to what happens to the wicked, Isaiah says once again, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek, poor meek. Of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 4. The question may come how do I know whether I am meek in the eyes of God? Here are some clues biblically. The meek person is growing in their ability to maintain their joy even in the midst of losing great possessions, knowing they have a better possession, even an abiding one with God. The meek person has died to self. Thus he or she holds no grudges. The meek person doesn't worry or is not consumed over his or her losses, and they are not running around trying to get payback or to get their due, what they believe is owed them. I believe it was John Bunyan who said, he who is down needs fear no fall. He who is down needs fear no fall. Meaning they who walk lowly, knowing they deserve nothing, have nothing to lose, so they have nothing to fear. The meek stand before a holy God and have nothing to commend themselves for. It isn't false humility, no. It's not cowardice. And it's not having a lack of conviction. And it's also not just about being a nice person. Meekness is knowing that in and of ourselves, attaining and keeping a good standing before God is impossible. As Jesus says in John chapter 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, in comparison to Jesus, we find that he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Yet the scripture says when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. How do we do with that? When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued, here it is, entrusting himself. Entrusting himself, right? That takes faith. No matter what's happening, I'm going to entrust myself to someone. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. 1 Peter 2, verses 22 and 23. Who do you entrust yourself to? Yourself? Most of the time. You entrust yourself to the government? Are we going to get it right next time and vote for the right person? And that's going to do it all? I'm entrusting myself to the government. Are you crazy? (laughs) Jesus, who we say we follow. We're Christians, followers of Christ. Are we like him entrusting ourselves to the one, the only one who judges, judges justly? 
When we get there, that's meekness. Those are the ones who shall inherit the earth. To those who are like that, God promises the earth. This isn't just any old promise from your neighbor or your boss who made so many promises that you're going to get that promotion. No, this is coming from God who promised you will inherit the earth. Jesus never defended himself, but when they turned his father's temple into a merchandising warehouse, he made a whip and gave some of them a beating. Meekness says, I don't have to defend myself, but I'm willing to die defending God and his righteousness. We get glimpses of this Christ-like character once again in men throughout the Bible. In Genesis chapter 12, God made a covenant, covenant with Abraham saying, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him, him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Abraham could have run with that, right? He could have run with that and be consumed with pride, conceit, and haughtiness. But in the very next chapter, chapter 13 of Genesis, we read that there is some beef, some static, if you want to say some smoke, between Abraham's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen. And Abraham could have been like, hey, you guys, you have to go. I don't care where you go, but you need to leave now. Who's the one God made a covenant with? Oh, that would be me. But Abraham didn't do that. He told his nephew Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are family. Look at all this land. If you take the left, I'll take the right. If you want the right, I'll take the left side. It's all good. It's all good. We are family. If you want the right side, I'll sit on the left side. If you come to church and you see me sitting in your seat, you take the other side. <laughs> then in 1 Samuel chapter 26, when Saul was chasing David to put an end to his life, even though David had done Nothing to him had, had been nothing but loyal to him. There came a time when David turned the tables. And Saul was asleep in the midst, in the middle of the, of the camp. And his men were surrounded, uh, were surrounding him, but they were asleep. And David came upon him, and it was his chance to take him out. But Abishai, even Abishai, one of David's soldiers, was there, and he even wanted to take out King Saul. And he tells David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please, let me pin him to the earth with my spear, and I won't have to uh, strike twice. One shot, he's gone. What would you have done? I know what I would have done, but I want you to watch and see what David did. He said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. 
But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. 1 Samuel chapter 26 verses 8 to 11. David took Saul's spear and water jug just so that Saul would know he had been there and that he could have used his power to kill him. But David operating under the control of the Holy Spirit, did not use his power to take vengeance on the man that, had, that God had ordained to lead the nation. That's meekness. That's power under control. Authority even, under restraint. How's your meekness? How's your meekness? I'm going to close with this. I'm going to ask a question, and I pray that you would really think about where you are in life, the authority that God has given you, and how do you use that in meekness? How do you exercise your power over your wife, your children, your ailing parents, or your impoverished family members who may be relying on you for support? God says, follow the example of my son who laid down his life for you when you were weak and lost, buried under your sin. Follow his example who came to give his life a ransom for many. Who are you giving your life for? Who have you given your life to? Who are you entrusting your life with? Think on these things. Meditate on these things. Refuse to be, this, to be the same person you've always been. Okay, until the heat is turned up, and now I have to react in the flesh. Stop that. God is screaming through his words. Stop that. How dare you say you love me, but you're showing nothing but love for yourself. Pray you think on these things. Let us pray together. Father, we praise you. We praise you with our words. I pray we would praise you with our lives. Please help us, Lord God. Help us to live honorably before you, Lord God. We are uh, always before you, Father God. I pray you would do, do, it, do something in us, Lord God. We, we, we trust that you have given us your spirit. Sometimes. We trust that you are with us sometimes. But your word says you are continually uh, before us and with us. You shall never leave us nor forsake us. And that sounds comforting when we're in trouble, but it's also true when we're prospering and our hearts are hardened and we're self-centered and we don't care about that next person. And we go about our lives as if it's all about us. And Christ is just someone we read about who lived 2,000 years ago and did something. Lord God, please help us. Please restrain our lips from sin. Please tame our, our, our hearts, Lord God, that we would serve you continually. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.